Welcome to 76 West, a podcast of the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan, featuring talks from the JCC's Conversation Series, a marquee program of the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas. This podcast is brought to you by Zabars and Zabars.com. Today we'll be listening to a discussion between actor, director, and writer Alan Alda and Abigail Pogrebin, part of Abby's ongoing series at the JCC, What Everyone's Talking About. For over a decade as the host of PBS's Scientific American Frontiers, and in his role at Stony Brook University's Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science, Alda has been helping people grasp complex ideas. In his lively book, If I Understand You, Would I Have This Look on My Face?, the Tony and Oscar nominee and seven-time Emmy Award winner uses his trademark humor to teach us how to better communicate and learn from each other. This conversation was recorded in front of a live audience on September 13th, 2017. They told me not to touch the microphone. You listen to is this okay? It's, I want you to be comfortable. Please oh, get comfortable. Oh, this is great. You Thank can... you. No, I'm good. Um, please. <laughs> While he settles himself, I want to say Happy New Year to, uh, I think there's some Jews out there. Um, and I may be one, you know. I'm you trying to be. find out from DNA. I'm, I'm hoping that I can find that out. I took a, a, a I sent a scraping from my mouth. <laughs> And uh, you could probably get a lot of money for that. Well, I found out that I'm two percent Jewish and four percent Neanderthal. <laughs> but it's the Goldberg Neanderthals. OK. All right. I wanted to just give a shout out to Saul Zabar, wherever you are, and Carol um, for supporting me for nine years. Um, I hope you will all get your breakfast locks there. Um, I often actually use their um, uh, Zabars.com to ship places. So thank you for supporting these conversations for so long. And Alan, thank you for doing this. Oh, I'm happy to. Um, just full disclosure, I have known Alan Alda since I was. Seven. Seven. I wondered how, how, how old you were when we first Isn't met. Seven incredible? years old. It's all been wow. downhill ever since. Yeah. Um, that was because Alan was, as you know, on the Free to Be You and Me album and TV show. Applause. <laughs> yeah, but so were you. you and you, so was I. Yeah. Right? That's right. I should start with I was on. That's right. For five seconds. Alan appeared with me on the show. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so I knew you, obviously, as you know, a role model and a wonderful, kind friend of our family, but never someone who was science obsessed. I don't well, remember yeah, that about I, it, I don't, don't make it come up in conversation all the time, but I really but Were am. you back then? Was it for... Was yeah, I for, always have been. So I didn't me, like how this sound that I put it closer. Okay. You're in control. You're a director. Yeah, You're right. a director. Now mine is not, right? <laughs> um, yeah, that's true. I always have been. So tell me a little bit about, before we get to the gestation of this book... You failed chemistry, correct? Yes. Yeah, that's my main qualification, friends, so, a scientist. Yeah. So where uh, did this appetite? You know why I failed it? I, I kind of wanted to. And then I found out I didn't have all that much trouble doing it. <laughs> my father wanted me to be a doctor, and I really didn't want to be a doctor. I didn't want to, uh, I didn't want to spend my life that way. I wanted to spend my life on the stage and writing. I wanted to be a writer even before I wanted to be an actor. And so he said, just take a summer course in this pre-med 
course in chemistry. So I did, and uh, I so didn't want to succeed. I got 10 in the final exam out of 100, 10 out of 100. So you really you know. accomplished your goal. Yeah. In fact, the professor called me into his room and he said, why are you here? <laughs> I thought that was an interesting question. <laughs> so segue to you start reading magazines. What's, what, what was the hook for you? Uh, I started reading Scientific American. And I, I, and it was so fascinating to me because I, I was curious about everything. And I, I, I heard that people were experimenting with parapsychology and uh, telepathy and seeing it at distance. And I thought, well, what's all that? I started reading. Well, I must have read hundreds of books on, on spiritualism and all that stuff. But it sounded like people were exploring it. And then there were claims made that didn't make any sense. And I thought, I better check this out with people who were really examining the world. Scientists, you know, doing it methodically. And then I, def I found a whole new way of thinking, which was based on evidence and what, not just what you think is probably true, but what you can demonstrate is true. And I never, that was in my early 20s, and I've read mostly science ever since. I'm, I find it hard to read novels. How come? Well, when, in novels, you can just tell they're making it up. <laughs> so when you were on MASH, yeah. all those years, how many years were you on MASH? 11. 11 years. <laughs> 11 is a popular number. Yeah, because you, were, you did Scientific American for I 11. did that for 11 years, too. Wow. Woo! <laughs> But just to get back to your MASH days, were you like in your trailer reading science during that time? <laughs> yes, as a matter of fact, yes. Really? And once in a while I'd say something odd on the set, like, isn't it funny about tardigrades? <laughs> I that, love tardigrades. Okay, we can get to that. Yeah, well, no, we don't have to get to <laughs> okay. it. Okay. So <clears throat> let's fast forward now. Yes. You're obviously very famous, and this uh, program was your idea, Scientific American Frontiers? Did oh, they approach no. you? No, they had been doing it for three years, and they were looking for, for some reason, looking for somebody, or four years, I think, and they wanted somebody else. So they sent a letter to people who I guess they thought might have some interest in it. I don't know. It was it, The letter was addressed to occupants, so I don't <laughs> know. And... Uh, I was, uh, you know, I, I, when I realized that they probably wanted me just to read a narration, and that didn't interest me. I said, I'll, I'll do it if you want to take a chance and let me interview the scientists because I want to learn from them. I, I want to spend the day with them, and that really appealed to me. And Arlene, my wife, Arlene was very uh, encouraging. She said, you'll love it. Do it. You know, she's always encouraged me to do the things that mattered the most in my life. It was very nice. She's amazing. Yeah. So you start. And you said it to the, the beginning didn't go so well. No, I thought, you know, I've been an improviser. I've improvising changed me as an actor and as a person. And I thought, I'll, I'll just go in and I'll ask them questions. And I did that in the first interview. And it was kind of terrible <laughs> because I've made, I made assumptions that I knew what they were talking about when I didn't really know what they were talking about. It's kind of important to know you don't know. How did you know it was bad? Everybody was making faces. <laughs> the scientists, I mean, I thought, this isn't going well. I'm not getting much out of the scientists, so I'll, 
I'll show how casual and comfortable I am with his work. And I rested my hand on his solar panel. He said, don't touch that. You'll break it. <laughs> so I had a hint it wasn't going that well. Who would know not to touch a solar panel? Who would know? You have to be some kind of genius, you know? <laughs> so how did you fix it? How did you turn it around? I, I did one, one important thing. I didn't, this sounds odd, but I didn't prepare going in. I didn't, I didn't try to learn everything I could about the scientists. I went in with my own natural ignorance, of which I had plenty to spare, you know. But I had ignorance with curiosity. Ignorance without curiosity is not so good. But with curiosity, that's where you get someplace. If you really know what you don't know and you want to know more about it, then you can get some really good. And then that did something to the scientist. What? It, it made them focus on me because I, re I didn't ask questions I knew the answers to. Mm. That makes a tremendous difference. If you don't know the answer to the question, then you give them a look that is different from the look you give them when you think you know the answer. It's more of a wall than a face. And they would respond to that. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't give up on them. If I didn't get an answer that I understood, I'd shake them. I'd get, I'd say, I don't get it. Tell me again. Say it some other way. Well, then they couldn't make these little mini lectures to the camera. They had to explain it to this one stupid person. They had this really tough task that they had to solve. And that made the interviews freewheeling conversations and different from pretty much any science interview on television, I think, because it was a, a human interaction. It wasn't, tell me about, pass on this information that you have. They weren't spraying me with information. They were trying to help me understand. So then when I got it, the audience got it. But science, uh, I'll speak for myself, is intimidating. Really? You, very. I mean, like, you like can what? help me with that. But Are you afraid of tardigrades? <laughs> I don't know what they are. They're really scary looking. They're, they're microscopic and they're so adaptable. They Is this can, a, uh, an insect? It's a, like a little microscopic animal. I don't know. It looks horrible. Looks like a looks like a puffy, woolly mammoth. I don't think it has eyes even. But it can exist in outer space. It can exist for years without food. It's a weird animal. They'll take over the earth. <laughs> I can see why the mash... Fellow actors thought that you had lost a little you. strength. Yeah. <laughs> but seriously, when you come to science, and many of us have these barriers of thinking it's overwhelming, I can't even begin to understand it. How do you plow through that with just curiosity? If you don't have the facility, well, yeah. If you have curiosity, you really want to understand it, and you won't settle for a poor um, comparison, poor analogy, and. Sometimes analogies are the only ways to give us a doorway to it. But if you, if you want to know more, you have to get past the analogy to something else. But, you, but if, you get, if all you do is get hit, and this is what makes most of us scared about science, if you get hit with the details before you understand anything else about it, the details are not going to, they're just going to confuse you. It's being caught in a hailstorm. You, you want to be led in step by step so that your curiosity is satisfied with each step, and then you'll have more. But you don't want that feeling of, I should never ask that question again. It, you actually made an analogy to when we were just in conversation with someone at a dinner party or cocktail party. It's actually kind of 
overwhelming if so if you say how are you what are you up to and you just bombard somebody with right. a litany you right. were saying tell them a story yeah and then they're in then you then you're interested in them right yeah yeah i see i suffer from the from the problem that, that everybody does which is being so aware of what i'm involved in then i forget sometimes what it's like to hear it for the first time which is called by many people the curse of knowledge, where you understand something so intimately in such detail that you automatically assume they get it too. So when somebody says to me at a dinner party, what are you up to these days? You know, just performing the social function of making conversation. If I say, well, I'm working really hard at the Center for Communicating Science, and so they, I see that glaze come over <laughs> I think that I hear them thinking, how long is this going to take now? <laughs> but if I say I worked with this doctor who helped a woman face death and she helped him be a better doctor because they listened to each other, he took her by the hand and he told her in the most simple terms about her illness and she began to cry when the doctor ahead of him had told her, in technical language, and she didn't even ask a question. She had no reaction whatsoever. So that's an interesting story if I tell it right. And then the person's liable to say, well, how did that happen? I said, well, now that's the Center for Communicating Scientists. <laughs> you know? So before we get to the center, you go from this, this television series, which is very successful. Was that when you got the idea this could be kind of a, a bigger mission? to help scientists communicate in ways that they're actually failing? No, I didn't see it that way. I just thought it would be fun. I had no idea that I'd, we'd be sitting here talking about communication or about teaching scientists. And from teaching scientists, I learned it applies to everybody. And all I wanted was the fun of spending time with scientists. That yeah, sounds so like I, an oxymoron. I just, well, <laughs> <laughs> No, they're very witty. You know, you can't be funny without being smart. And they're very smart. I mean, as long as you don't think it's funny to fall down. What do you mean? You don't have to be smart to fall down. So a lot of a lot of people are funny that way. I mean, wit. Pratt you know. falls. Right. Yeah, yeah. So the the center came out of the this idea, though, that you wanted to spend time with scientists. Yeah, once, I, once the, we did the show and I realized what made the show work was this connection between people. And it was so much like what I had done as a, as a young actor, which was improvising. Then I realized that, or I, I hoped it would be possible to teach scientists to communicate better by teaching them improvisation. And, and then to work from there to teach them how to organize their, their materials so that it was easier to understand. But first through improvisation to make this same contact that we had on the program where we just had real conversation. And it was going to be a real exchange. So tell me about the improv. How did you start using it? And didn't people think this was like apples and oranges? Yeah. Well, it, it, in the beginning, it was hard to explain to people that this would actually lead to better communication because the games seemed silly, you know. What kind of games? Well, like mirroring. Get up, I'll show you. Oh, my gosh. I'm, you're, just so, before we get up, you're going to be my mirror. I'm looking into the mirror. You're the mirror. Okay. I feel very pressured. Oh, good. That's fine. You won't after it's over.
That's hard. So the idea. The idea is. The idea is when I went crazy and went fast. I just like, mirrored with Alan Alda. <laughs> what I did, I went fast like that to demonstrate something, which is to that. Pay attention. I no, I, you can't follow me if I don't focus on helping you follow me. And if I go like this, you can't follow me. But it's not your fault. It's my responsibility to help you follow me. That's a basic notion in good communication. Right. I mean, people are teaching students all the time and saying, why don't you remember what I told you? Why don't you learn? Why don't you work hard? What's the matter? You're not paying attention. It's not their responsibility. It's your responsibility to help them follow, just like in this thing where you're following my movements. And the other thing you learn from doing this, which is spectacular, which that doctor learned when he helped a woman face her own death. There's a, something that goes between you when you're connected, when you're really paying attention to each other. We were reading each other's faces, each other's eyes, body motions. The rest of the world goes away, and it's just two people connecting, and we're social animals. And I think something goes on inside us when you really connect with another person. I mean, there have been studies that talk about that. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not up on all those studies, but... You feel different. You feel better. It's a good feeling. And it helps reinforce the process of communication, I think. And you saw a real before and after when the students got up and gave their, like, thesis? Yeah, thesis. the first time I did it was with 20 uh, engineering students at USC in California, University of Southern California. And um, I asked them to come in and talk about their work in engineering for two minutes. Then we improvised for three hours which none of them had ever done before. Games like a tug of war with an imaginary rope. Six people on each side, and they have to observe each other so carefully that they know where most of the pressure is, where most of the, the, uh, the, the power is in the tug of war. And it goes this way, and then it goes the other way. And finally, the people win. They pull the other people down. Everybody falls on the floor. It's an amazing thing. And it's all in the imagination and observing one another's bodies. So we did three hours of that. And then they gave their talks again. And everybody in the room was astonished that the talks were lively or more understandable. And including me, I was surprised, too, because I didn't know if it would work. It was kind of an experiment. And then uh, eight years ago, we started doing it for real at Stony Brook. And since then, we've trained 8,000 doctors and scientists. Wow. Fantastic. Yeah. And not only, not only in the United States, dozens of universities and medical schools in the United States, also uh, Australia. We just came back from Oslo, Scotland, Ireland. Going to go next, uh, next spring to Israel. And it's, it's catching fire. We can't keep up with all the demand on, on our service. People realize it works. Tell me about the water exercise and why that works. What, why, what that I would be fun, It would be fun to show you, but we don't. It's all right. You can describe. I, you know, we, I have to tell you. It's but more fun to show you. I asked somebody to come up from the audience. The idea is what makes a story. You know, about 2,400 years ago, Aristotle talked about what made a story, and he's famous for saying, a story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. I don't think that's the whole story. Because <laughs> a dead cat has a beginning, a middle, and an end. 
is more to what is the middle? What's this middle part? I wondered about that ever since I heard that phrase. What does it mean? Just something that comes between the beginning and the end? I don't think so. If you say, I wanted to get some eggs, so I got in the car and I bought some eggs. Not much of a story. The middle is, I guess, I get, got in the car. But if I got in the car and the motor wouldn't start and I had to get the eggs because the boss was coming to breakfast, then it's a little more of a story. So I, I illustrate that by having somebody pick up a glass of water and carry it across the stage and put it down. And nobody's impressed with that because there's no struggle on the way. There's no obstacle that's keeping them from going from over here to over there to put the glass down. So then when they're over there, I fill the glass to the brim with water, right to the very brim. And I say, now put the glass down on the table over there, but don't spill a drop or your entire village will die. <laughs> now they're going across the stage like this and there's incredible tension. And if a bead of water goes down the side of the glass, you can hear the audience gasp. Why? And everybody knows there's no village. <laughs> Nobody's going to die. But there's suddenly there's an obstacle in the way. There's this effort to overcome an obstacle put in the path. And that makes it watchable. It's, you can't take your eyes off that person with the glass full of water. Just as when you tell a story, you got to find out, I think, where does the struggle come that has to be overcome to get to the prize at the end? And for a scientist, that can be... Could be anything. The beaker breaks and you lose six months of work. Your graduate student absconds with your funding. You don't get funding. You're about to be fired because of misconduct. <laughs> All kinds of stories. Is it sometimes the science itself that's the obstacle? The the figuring something out? That's yeah, it could be, but it would have to be demonstrated, you know, mm -hmm. like Marie Curie. having Her obstacle was she had to find... Uh, this substance that she thought she had discovered, she had to find it in seven tons of slag, which had been dumped in her courtyard. And she spent like six years boiling this rock to get, you know, smelling these fumes for six years. That's probably a pretty good obstacle. You applied this also to musicians, students at the... Uh... Oh, I did. Yeah, I was asked to come to the Perlman Music Camp because the kids there, these are uh, brilliant musicians from all over the world in their teens. And they're extraordinary players. But they, they said that they were having trouble um, talking to the audience about what they were going to play before they play it. So would this help them? And I thought, yeah, sure, I can help them do that. But I had a secret mission. I thought, I bet this makes them play more freely, too. And we did interesting uh, exercises that would help them speak. But I also wanted to open them up, free them up emotionally. So I said, pick up your instruments. They're all uh, string instruments. And I said, uh, toss an emotion from one person to another. Make an emotional sound on the instrument. Not a tune, not an emotional piece, but just make an emotional sound. Anger, sorrow, tenderness. That would be an example of the kind of thing we did. But when we had them, I had them talking in gibberish, had them doing all kinds of things that you do in improv. And when it was over, they spoke better and they played more freely. And I'm going to try this in a couple of other music schools this coming year. 
The amazing thing is this, this I didn't know. I didn't know what would happen. I thought, we'll teach scientists to communicate better and the world will be a better place. And the, the education of scientists and doctors will be completely different and that'll be a tremendous contribution. And then I, the reason I wrote the book is that I realized that it helps everybody. Anytime two people come together and need to interact, they have to communicate. Parents and children, bosses and employees, everybody, me and the cab driver. Tell us about the cab driver story because we all live that often and it happens to me all the time when I lean in and he says, where are you going? Yeah, everybody in New York knows at 4.30 you can forget about getting a taxi cab. Because the, 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 the shift is changing. They have to deliver the cab to somebody else. And uh, I was at Columbus Circle one day and I hailed him. This, this came at the end of about two or three weeks of having decided that you get a lot of empathy. You need a lot of empathy to communicate. You got to know what's going on in the other person's mind and in their emotional life. So you can reach them. So you, can, you don't just say things to them. You're talking to who's really in there. So you get empathy from improvising. But I realized that not everybody's going to be able to find an improvising workshop. And even myself, for myself, I couldn't go to an improvising class every week. I, 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 I don't have, sometimes I go months or years without improvising. What could I do on my own that would work? What would build up my empathy? So I said, okay, so paying attention to faces builds up empathy. I mean, that's been shown. So I'm going to go through the day, and whoever I see, I thought, I'm going to study their face, I'm going to name their emotion, and I'm going to get so tuned into them, my empathy will rise. And then came this day, I'm hailing a cab at Columbus Circle. He pulls up to me and he says, where are you going? And now I go, oh, you don't ask me where I'm going. But I was all empathized up. <laughs> so I thought, this guy, this guy's changing shift, he's got to give the cab back. So I told him where I was going. He said, okay, get in. And he said, where, where, oh, oh, oh. so I knew he, he had the address, right? So then he says, what's the cross street? Now I get furious again. That's their job. There's, I drove a cab in my 20s. They're supposed to know the cross street. But I, the empathy kicked in. I said, I'm looking it up for you on my iPhone. He says, you know, you're a really nice person. People get in this cab. They don't care about the other person. I've had to go to the bathroom for the last half hour. Nobody cares. <laughs> I said, no, no, don't, don't. There's the one at 96th Street. Drop me off at 84th Street. Don't even go around the corner. I'll get out there and walk a block. He said, no, no, I'm taking you where you're going. You're too nice. People aren't nice. He's giving up his kidneys for me. <laughs> Empathy makes other people a lot less annoying. <laughs> Seventy Six West is brought to you by Zabars and Zabars.com. In 1934, Lewis and Lillian Zabar opened a shop along Broadway at 80th Street on New York's Upper West Side. Lewis was a stickler for quality, roasting his own coffee and personally visiting smokehouses to sample and inspect fish, rejecting far more than he accepted. Today, Lewis's principles and practices continue to guide Zabars. Respect the customer. Never, ever stint on quality. Offer fair value. And last but not least, keep searching for the new and wonderful. 
Be sure to visit Zabar's store on 80th and Broadway, or visit zabars.com for mouth-watering specialties like bagels, babka, rugelach, smoked fish, and of course, world-famous caviar. Zabar's ships to all 48 contiguous United States plus Alaska, Hawaii, and Puerto Rico, so there's no reason your friends can't enjoy the fresh, homemade taste of Zabar's any day of the week. What about when it turns bad? You talk about dark empathy. Yeah. What is that in the book? Well, well, I think that I call it dark empathy because to me, empathy is just a tool. It's, it's It's not a state of compassion. You can become compassionate if you have empathy, but it's not automatic. I mean, some people's definition of it includes that it that it's you're compassionate if you're empathic. I don't use it that way. I, the the way I use it is that it's just a tool for communication because I believe there there's something that I call dark empathy, where you know what the other person is feeling and thinking, and you can use it against them. Con artists use our state of mind against us. Psychic palm readers use it against us. Sometimes politicians use this against us. Nobody I think of at the moment, but. <laughs> uh, there's so many ways it can be used. Sometimes uh, a, um, a, an over-aggressive salesperson will use, will read you and know how to push you into where you don't really want to go or shouldn't go. It's, but if you want to do something positive for the other person, a little bit of empathy can probably push you over into the positive action. You know, in the book, I write about this idea, this story that I don't own up to as having happened to me. I say, suppose a husband's coming home late at night. It's me, I have to tell you. <laughs> so the husband, me, comes home. It's after midnight. The missus is already asleep. And I pass by the kitchen sink and I see this huge pile of dishes. And I think, gee, I guess I better do something about that. What are the chances I'm gonna do something about that? <laughs> Not terribly high, unless I indulge in a little empathy and I think, I imagine what she'll feel like in the morning if she sees that pile of dishes. What, and I can imagine the feeling, because the way you know what another person is feeling is you feel it yourself in some way, some analog feeling. And boom, I'm washing dishes. And, you know, it's in this way that a lot of men find out that washing dishes is foreplay. <laughs> One time I said something like that, and the woman in the back said, uh-uh. <laughs> Needs more than that. Um, but you do talk about how couples could use this, some of these communication lessons um, for each other, for intimacy. You know, we don't necessarily think about deconstructing how we're interacting with the person we're married to or we're with all the time. Do you have advice or pointers about? You know, I, it's, it's interesting. It, <clears throat> excuse me. As you know <clears throat> from reading the book, I have this real fear of tips. I don't like to give people tips. I like to put them, find some way to put them through an experience that changes them. Because I don't think you get changed by tips. There are all kinds of, you can look all over the internet, you see, 
10 ways to accomplish this, 12 ways to become a billionaire. There'd be a lot of billionaires if you get it from 12 tips. It's experiences. I mean, there's a, there's a speed limit sign in Sag Harbor near, near where we have a house. And the speed limit sign says 25 miles an hour. And I used to go past it at 40 miles an hour regularly until I got stopped by a cop and he gave me a ticket. And after that, I never went more than 25 miles an hour past the sign. The sign was the tip. The ticket was the experience. <laughs> it kind of meant a lot to me after that, you know? So I don't have tips for couples I don't, any more than I have for anybody else. But the basis of it, I think, applies to couples uh, in the same way that it does to everybody, to salespeople, to parents and children, to scientists and doctors, patients and their doctors, which is to make contact with the person in a rich way, in a deep way. One of the exercises that I do, you know what we, you mind if we do a little experiment sure. with, the, with the group here? You want to do a little experiment with me? Okay, this will take about three minutes. You have the time? Yeah. Okay. Okay, so I'm not going to tell you what we're going to be experimenting on. You'll see in a minute. Starting over on this side, on, on your left, turn to somebody on your right, but not somebody you live with, not somebody you know really well. If it's to see if you can turn to somebody you don't know well. Okay, you never met before if you can. Okay, now decide who's number one and who's number two. So let's say the person on this side is number one, the person on this side is number two. Okay, person number one, you're a teenager. And person number two, you're a parent. And the teenager is trying to get the parent to increase your allowance by threefold. You want three times as much, and you're only uh, like about 15 or so. The parent, you have to respond to that. You have 20 seconds to convince the parent to make your allowance three times as much. Okay, go. Okay, good. Stop. Thank you. Very good. Now, uh, the person, people playing the parent, how many of you gave in? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, maybe ten. Okay. Okay, now the people who are the teenagers, close your eyes. Just think this answer. What color are your parents' eyes? <laughs> Say it out loud now to the parent. Keep your eyes closed. How many of you were right about that? How many of you had it right? Look at that. About, about four people had it right. Five, yeah. Okay, now keep your eyes closed. What color is your parents' hair? Okay, now you can look at them and find out. Were you, were you right? Okay, now we're going to do it one more time. Now that you're tuned in to the other person a little bit. Now you're the same teenager and you want to borrow your parents' car even though you 
dented it up two days ago. Okay, 20 seconds, go. Okay. Good. Thank you. With Okay, parents. How many parents gave in this time? It's about twice as many. It, each time it's about one time it was three or four times as many. Did you find any difference in the second version? Shout out because I saw a difference. I saw people making physical contact. I saw them leaning in more. Kissing. People were kissing. Were, were they? I, I didn't see that. Oh, not that kind of physical contact. No. It's so interesting. Once you, once you make physical contact, eye-to-eye contact, when you take in the other person's face and you don't just see a blob where the face was, it's amazing the difference it makes. Now, I'm very tuned into this stuff, and sometimes I'll be having, <clears throat> pardon me, I'll be having a conversation with somebody and I'll look away and I'll think, have I seen this person's face yet? I, and I think about, I see if I can recall the face and I just see a blob where the face was. And then I go back and I really pay attention to the color of the eyes, the hair, well, shape of the face. And Can all of a sudden that changes me and it changes them too. When you did the experiment where you just looked at someone's eyes online, yeah. there was like one set of eyes after another and you tried to see what they were feeling just from the eyes. Yeah, that's a, that's a test anybody can take. It's called reading emotion in the eyes. And you can find out how tuned in you are to uh, being able to read other people's emotions. What about um, just in terms of when this fails? Yeah. What's at stake if we don't communicate, if we don't do this, if we're not tuned in, and particularly New Yorkers who are kind of on the run and not yeah. necessarily taking the time? To do what even just happened just now. Yeah. Well, it, it, there's a lot at stake. And I mean, look at how many people are talking to their doctors every day in this country. You know, there, there have been studies that counted the number of seconds it takes for a, a patient to talk to the doctor before the doctor interrupts, which about 10 years ago was 18 seconds. And then 10 years later, they did it again, and it was much improved. It was up to about 21 seconds. Well, how can you get the, how can you find out about the whole person? You maybe get at some symptoms, but the symptoms may not be the whole thing. What's the person's story? And, and it works throughout the system. We found that when we train doctors and scientists to communicate better, the teamwork that they have to go through improves automatically. The teamwork is much more efficient. It's much friendlier. It's, it, it, it goes with fewer snags. Not always, but you, at least you have the tools to fix it. When you were in the dentist chair, this is start, the, the gestation for the book came out of that moment. Am I right? Can it, you tell us what happened? Yeah, it was a, it was a, an important moment for me. One is the more I did this work, the more I realized that probably began at that moment when I was sitting in a dentist chair. It started when I was 11. 
and I was a really clever kid. I think maybe I was 12 when I did this. I wanted to scare birds out of a tree, so I took a rock and threw it up into the tree. And it turns out the rock comes right down from where you threw it. Smashed into my face, bro broke my front tooth, and I lost the nerve in the tooth and the root, so there wasn't much holding it in. And by the time I was in my 50s, this was this green dead thing that had to be taken out. So the doctor said, the dentist said, uh, I have a special operation I invented. I'm going to take it out. It's going to pull. I'm going to pull a little bit of tissue from the gum over the socket, and it'll get a blood supply, and it'll heal much better. So I said, okay. Now we're about to do the thing, and he's standing there in his white coat, and he's got the scalpel right in front of my face. And he says, now there'll be some tethering. I, I said, what? He said, tethering. There'll be some tethering. I said, what, what, do you, what do you mean? He's tethering, tethering. And I was intimidated. I was over the age of 50, and I was intimidated by this guy. And I, I said, okay. And he... He cut that little thing that holds between your lip and your gum. And, and the frenum or frenulum, there are different ways of saying it. And I couldn't smile the same way anymore. I was making a movie two weeks later, and I was supposed to smile in a scene, and the cameraman said, I thought you were going to smile. I said, I did. He said, no, you were sneering. <laughs> I looked in the mirror, and I was sneering. So ever since then, I've been able to play villains really well. And the dentist was only interested in my not suing him. He said, I told you there were two stages to the operation. It's not my fault. I didn't want to sue him. I didn't sue him. I just wanted him to know he, he should communicate better. But I don't think I ever went back to get my freedom repaired. You also said that we communicate through packaging. Yeah, they, they, the companies are communicating with me all the time, and they so don't even know Give us know an it. example. Well, I go to the store, I buy this thing, and it's wrapped in plastic that's hard as glass. You can't get into it without a sledgehammer. <laughs> this is a communication. Ha-ha, they're saying. I often wonder, does the president of the company ever try to get this damn thing open? The, the best example of that is... Um, Somebody was trying to open a package that had the thing they had bought in it, and it said on the package, cut this open with a pair of scissors. The problem was that what was in the package was a pair of scissors. <laughs> There's something a little crazy about this, but that's, I mean, you know, you don't think of communicating. The reason I brought that up in the book is that we often don't think we're communicating with people when that's exactly what we're doing. We're having an interaction with them, and we're not thinking about them. How's this landing on them? Okay, I got this pair of scissors. I want to make sure it gets on the truck without being damaged. I want to make sure it is in stores without people being able to pilfer it. So I'll wrap it in this impenetrable plastic. But the point of putting it out in the store is so a customer can use it. That's the point of taking their money. It's a communication that just goes terribly bad. And you said, and we need to go to questions soon, but I love that you look back at, ma at your MASH days and how instead of going into your trailers in between scenes, in between yeah. takes, you all sat around. Yeah, we do. We sat in a circle and made fun of each other. 
And and I do that whenever I can. Whenever I'm in a play, we will often, if, if the other people are willing to do it, we sit for about an hour before every performance, eight times a week, and just laugh. And when we did art, the three of us in the play would walk out from the from the green room to the to the stage before the curtain went up, and until, right up until about five seconds before the curtain went up, we were kidding each other. But what's what happens when you do that? I think it's the best preparation. It's because it's a social activity. What happens is you have a relationship with the person you're going to be playing a scene with. You're connected. You're already having stuff pass back and forth between you. And when they come out on stage, you continue that, but now with the lines of the scene. And it's easily transferred, transformed into the scene you're playing. But if you haven't seen this person since last night on the stage and you haven't, sa- haven't even said hello to them in between, which usually happens, people come in, they go to the dressing room and they get into some internal state and they're okay in their internal state. But what about you? You know, if you can... To me, the whole thing is interaction. It's contact between the people on stage. So we don't have to be friends with everybody, though, right? It's not the same as friendship. No, but you you got to make contact. You can make contact with people, and then it works the other way around as well. You can make contact really well with people and then go on stage and play mortal enemies. And I think play enemies even better because you can pick them up on the little things they say and let them have it. On that note, let's thank Alan. Thank you. That was Alan Alda talking to Abigail Poberman. Our podcasts are produced by Megan Whitman and me, Eric Winnick. Our editor is Matt Temkin. Our music was written and performed by Peril Wolf. The voice of Zabars is Leah Rosensweet. Please give us a rating and review on iTunes, and if you can, share this episode with your friends. If you're just joining us, welcome, and be sure to subscribe for future episodes.